Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. At 62, I've lived long enough to see some dramatic value and conceptual changes take place in our society, among them a tremendous improvement in the roles of women and of GLBTQI folks in society. Part of the work in moving society forward in these ways is to change the deeply embedded images and ways of thinking that are the foundations of our actions. Today's Spirit in Action guests have been changing the world through theology, and particularly as feminist theologians. Carol P. Christ and Judith Plasco were among the first women at Yale University. Getting their PhDs in religious studies meant they were in an even more rarefied circle. They co-edited Women's Spirit Rising and Weaving the Visions, and independently produced a number of influential writings for the field. Today, we'll be addressing their latest co-written book, Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology, which promises to further fuel our efforts to make a better world, both in human and extra-human relations. Carol Christ joins us via Skype across the Atlantic in Greece, and Judith Plasco is with us by phone from New York. I'm excited to have both of you here today for Spirit in Action. Welcome, Carol. It's very nice to be here, Mark. I'm speaking to you from Molibos, Lesbos, Greece. And you also, Judith. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. I'm speaking to you from New York, Manhattan, much less exotic. It's got a lot of exotic in Manhattan. (laughs) Can't you find just about everything? I know that Carol, being in Greece, she has access to a lot of old world stuff. But all those cultures, teachings, nationalities, aren't they available to you in Manhattan? Yes, they are. That's why I live here. And Carol, are all the restaurants on Lesbos excellent? Most of them have really fresh ingredients and home-cooked Greek food, which is always good. So the reason I have both of you here is your book publicist sent me a copy of the book, Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology. We're going to break that down. But the reason I contacted the book publicist in the first place is because I feel like theology has a place in our world. Most of the time on this program, I have activists specifically on people trying to produce some kind of concrete change in the world. Could either of you tell us why theology is important? Why should we talk about theology? Why can't we just go out and do stuff? I can take that. I think that most activism is rooted in a worldview. 
why be an activist? What's our purpose in this world? Why do we want to make the world a better place? How are we connected to other people? And those are all deeply theological questions. So I think that reflecting on them can both ground our activism and enhance and enliven it. And in American culture today, the right-wing Christians are very active in politics. And I think it's important that we don't cede the ground to them, because I think that I agree with Judith that we all have deeply held convictions and intuitions and feelings that shape our worldview. And it's important to provide alternatives to the right-wing Christians. And one of the things that we discuss in our book is that theology is not... It has in the past, but it should not be in the future, uh, rooted in the idea of the authority of the Bible or the authority of tradition. But rather, we need to come to a new understanding that while we may respect traditions and we may even root ourselves in them, or we may not, it's really ourselves and our communities who are interpreting the past and giving it a shape towards the future. So it's really not right to think of well, Christians think this, and they have to think that. Jews think this, they have to think that. People who are in the New Age think differently. In fact, for all of us, it's a matter of thinking for ourselves, examining our deeply held feelings and our relationships with others and with the natural world, and coming to our own visions of what the divine is for us and for our world. You know, Carol, you certainly know I'm Quaker, and that gives me a certain amount of openness, latitude in how I approach, think about things. Authority is an easy thing for me to reject. I do have friends and actually very close family who are not of that mind, that they say, you're not operating from a solid place. You're not on the rock if you haven't got the Bible or the Pope or someone as your authority. And you, Carol, started out, I mean, you came more or less from Christianity into your goddess feminist identity that you have today. Was that like blowing in the wind to leave the clearly defined paths of the elders of the people of past? Yes, I think that when people who are seeking to shape their own worldview and their own views of divinity and its relationship to people and nature, we often do feel that we can't rely on tradition. I, I remember years ago, I have a brother who's quite high up in the Mormon church, and you know he just says, well, this is the way it is, and that's the way it is, and that's how it, I've been taught. And I said, but, well, I kind of sort of think maybe a little differently. And I certainly wasn't on the same footing as he was, because no matter what I said, I said, well, it's a matter of what I think, it's a matter of interpretation, and he just wasn't accepting any of that. But of course, any tradition, including the Mormon and, and the fundamentalist Christian positions, are based on interpretation. So that if you want to pull out an anti-gay and lesbian passage from the Old Testament, that's your choice. That's not, you don't have to pull that one out. And, you know, we know that people don't necessarily pull out some of the other laws from Leviticus. So I think that it's important to open a conversation about the process of interpretation. But of course, that's going to be closed off if people are unwilling to acknowledge that they too are interpreting their traditions. And Judith, do you have a similar perspective coming from the Jewish background that you do? 
I do. I'm thinking in this conversation of a wonderful image from Adrian Rich's poem, Transcendental Etude, that when we let go of the rhythms we've moved to thoughtlessly, as she puts it, we find ourselves in free fall. You know, there is that moment of terror, what happens when I let go of established authorities, but it can also be a very exciting process. I mean, for me, as a Jewish theologian, what's clear is the diversity of voices and often the conflict between voices or among voices in every Jewish text, from the Bible to contemporary texts. I mean, in the Talmud, that diversity and the disagreements are celebrated. So I very much agree with what Carol is saying, that we need to choose which aspects of the tradition we're going to lift up. It's not as if we're presented with a monolith. That's clear. And it's always been a process of interpretation from the very beginning. You know, later biblical texts interpret earlier texts. Later rabbis interpret earlier rabbis and disagree among themselves. So where do we It's not a given that emerges clearly from the text. Both of you were drawn to theology, to this way of thinking that used to be almost exclusively a male domain at a very young age. Judith, would you care to comment on when you first realized you were going to be a theologian? Well, I feel as if I was born a theologian. It's quite fascinating to me as I look back on my life. I came from a family that went to temple on the holidays, but certainly was not deeply religious or interested in religion. But I was fascinated by the concept of God and by questions of the purpose of human life and why there was evil in the world from the time that I was a very little kid. Now, it feels to me like something that I was born with. And you, Carol? When I was about 13, 14 years old, there were quite a few of my intimate family members who died. My uh, father's mother died of a brain cancer, and I heard horrifying details about how she was hooked up to tubes in the hospital for a very long time. And shortly after that, my grandfather, who had been paralyzed for quite a long time, he died. And then my mother had a baby who only lived for five days. And I think that experiencing death so intimately at a very young age set me on my path of trying to find out what does it mean that God loves the world if there's so much suffering and death? Why would God allow a baby to die? Why would God allow my mother to be depressed for years? I think these were the questions that were in the back of my mind uh, when I started college. But The idea that I could become a theologian is not something that I felt from a child. I never thought I could become anything really other than a secretary or a nurse or a mother and a teacher, but not a college teacher or certainly not a theologian. So those were ideas that were suggested to me by some of my professors in college. And I was lucky enough to be able to, as did Judith, to win a a fellowship to support my graduate work. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it at all. 
And I believe your paths intersected in Yale, at least that's what I read in Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology. And Carol Christ, you were just speaking, you made it to Yale, and it took a year before the two of you really knew each other. You had some overlap that time. Judith, how did you end up going to Yale? I came from a family where there were higher expectations of me, so the idea of being a college teacher was certainly not, you know, something that was unthinkable in my family. Going into religion was different. I think that my parents were quite upset uh, when I chose my field of study. But I just applied to a bunch of top graduate schools, and as Carol said, I got a good fellowship so I could go anywhere, and Yale seemed to me the best program. I mean, I was concerned as a Jew about studying theology within a divinity school, and Yale offered a theology program in the graduate school. I didn't realize until I got there that there was almost no distinction between the graduate school and the divinity school. But yes, I chose Yale because I could do a program in the graduate school. Both of you are several years older than me, I believe. And that means that you were dealing with feminism right as it was becoming widespread, the second wave feminism, as it's sometimes called. It's a very heady time, but it also means that, as you were commenting, Carol, the expectation that a woman is going to be a housewife or a secretary, and you know the limitations were there. It was really difficult for people to go beyond it. I believe that in your courses of study, both of you had to face the fact that at this point, they only wanted to look at male-oriented thinking, I guess I'd say. That's how I interpret the book. You can say it better. Who would care to take this one? We realized when we became feminists, which was after my first year at Yale and after Carol's second, that we had never had a single book or article by a woman in any of our classes. But I don't think that seemed surprising or unusual to us initially because theologians were men. Who else would we be reading? And it took becoming feminist to step back and say, wait a minute, have there really been no women in the history of theology? And if there have been no women or few women, what does that mean for the field? What does it mean for us? as budding theologians, and what does it mean for the ways in which our understanding of God and the world and human beings have been distorted, or partial, partial is a better word. When I entered Yale, I was one of two women out of about 100 men in the religious studies program, and the other one was a nun, and she didn't associate with the other students very much at all. I actually never, almost never saw her. And I was wearing miniskirts and very tall, and I was treated basically as, you know, I was once introduced actually by a fellow student as our department bunny. The fact that he could even say that, that was after five years of being there, he could still say that, is a small indication of how I was treated when I first got there. That, and it seemed that I could either be a body and of course, I wanted to be a woman and I wanted to be thought of as attractive and things like that. I could either be a body or I could be a mind. And it was almost impossible for them to conceive of me as a mind because I had a female body. So it was very, very confusing to me. In fact, 
I would say it, it almost led to a psychotic break because the way I understood myself and the way I was being perceived were so at odds. And very early on, although I didn't really know that I needed to read women theologians, I realized that there was a strain in Christian theology. I first noticed it when reading St. Thomas Aquinas and then a little bit later in reading Bart, that woman was identified with the body and nature and man was identified with rationality in the soul. When I began to question that, I was told, oh, that's, yeah, they did say something like that, but we don't think that way anymore. So it was just completely dismissed. And your experience, Judith, of dealing with feminism, did you feel that coming from the Jewish background, it sounded when you spoke earlier that like you already had more belief in the availability of the world to you, more roles. Did you find that at Yale? No, I certainly didn't find it at Yale. And let me say, Jewishly, I grew up in a Reform congregation, a classical Reform congregation, and the Reform movement had paid lip service to the equality of women a hundred years earlier, but women were not invited to the bima at the front of the synagogue. The only role for women in our synagogue was lighting candles Friday night. So I grew up with a complete contradiction between the message of equality and the reality of what I was seeing. And when I got to Yale, it was a complete, well, first of all, when we came, it was a completely male institution on the undergraduate level. It was in my second and Carol's third year that women were admitted as undergraduates, and Yale began even raising the question, well, what does it mean to educate women? Professors were not used to teaching women. We were under surveillance in a different way from the men. It was a dreadful experience, and It was only when I got away from it that I was able to see how traumatic it had been. A couple of years after I left Yale, I was talking to someone about what my experience had been, and I couldn't stop crying. But, you know, while I was there, it was impossible to acknowledge how impossible it was. It is a tremendous challenge. I don't think that people growing up now have any idea of the immense change that's happened between go back to the 1950s pre the whole 60s burgeoning of a number of ideas that I think have radically changed our country and now the assumption of male and female equality is just so common now you know I'm Quaker and I grew up Catholic so I didn't grow up with the assumption of equality but I've been a Quaker since basically I was 18 And Quaker ideas about equality and male and females really goes back to the 1600s. Are there other theological sources along the way, women who have been empowered over the years, that when you got the hidebound attitudes out of the way that you could pull texts, you know, from Teresa of Avila or Hildegard of Bingham or others? Are there readings like that that really were available that were just being ignored? They were certainly being ignored. And uh, (laughs) when we um, started trying to collect some of them, we were told that this is not an important question and, you know, don't get too involved in it. So, yes, I think that since 1970s and 1980s, there's been a great deal of research done on women throughout the Christian tradition and in the Jewish tradition. And, of course, in the Christian tradition now, there's a great interest in Mary Magdalene, not only among those who view her as a 
possible or actual lover of Christ, but also I think most of the New Testament scholars are now entertaining the idea that she was the apostle to the apostles. Apparently the Pope even proclaimed that recently. So I think that part of you know, what we've been doing is uncovering a history that has been ignored and lost. And the problem that faces us today is, will this happen again? You know, as women's studies moves into gender studies or gets incorporated under some other larger rubric, can this happen again? Can all of the research that we've done and all of the uncovering that we've done be lost once again? I would just add to that that I think mysticism was looked at askance when we were in graduate school. So you have this whole rich literature by women mystics, but our education was in a much more rationalistic theology. So that was a whole other dimension. So one of the reasons that I had both you on, Judith and Carol, is because feminism and the identity of God, male, female, both, neither, seems to be, at least at the early end of your studies, crucial in terms of envisioning a changing world. Can you comment about what gender or non-gender God has, Judith? Well, when we began to bring our feminist questions to our studies, one of the first things that we began to realize is that God is always depicted as male, and that we had taken that for granted. I would see this as analogous to not recognizing that we weren't reading anything by women. I mean, that's just the way it is. But we began to ask, you know, why is God depicted as male? I think that most people learn two contradictory things, that God is beyond gender, God is neither male nor female, and that God is male. And people will sometimes say, well, we all know God is beyond gender, so there's no reason that we shouldn't continue to talk about God as male. But we started to realize that understanding God as male has a profound influence on our society, on the way that we think about ourselves, on the way that we think about our possibilities as women. And we began to look for the signs that were often buried in Jewish and Christian texts, and then the substantial evidence outside of the Jewish and Christian traditions that God had not always been thought of as male. And Carol, because you become a goddess feminist, obviously there's some attribute of the feminine uh, side of the divine that calls to you. What's your point of view today? Well, I, I mean, while I would say that God or the divine or goddess is beyond or inclusive, it's probably better to say inclusive, of all genders and indeed of all races and all kinds of people and all the diversity and difference in the world, including individuals other than human, which would be animals and perhaps even plants, or else certainly the cells of our bodies are also individuals. So the divine has to be inclusive of all of the diversity and difference in the world. But my passion throughout my life and my career has been for the female face of God or the, the goddess, seeking that, trying to find ways to understand and image that. For me, I began with a critique of God as the old white man in the sky, and I very quickly realized that 
we tend to picture him as, although we picture him in a, you know, an older white body as Michelangelo did with a white beard. We also identify the male God primarily with rationality and rational control. And if we go then into the Bible, we also find the maleness of God being associated with images of control and as domination. And so the maleness of God in uh, the Exodus, he throws the horses and chariots of the Pharaoh into the sea. In Christian visions of hell, he's apparently watching all of the torments of the people in hell. It's a God who's very much dominant in the world and over the world. And so for me, the images of domination became just as fundamental to counteract as the image of God is male. I saw them as going together, and of course they go together in our popular culture and in the general way we tend to think about the world. Father knows best, and you know when we go against him, we will be told, and if we don't listen to what we're told, we'll be punished. So all of these are images of domination that we associate both with the male role in a patriarchal society and with the male God in a patriarchal society. So for me, it's been as important to think about alternatives to the dominating aspects of God and particularly the warlike aspects of God in my images of goddess. And when you turn to, let's say, Greek mythology, you find Athena is a warrior. And I think that she also needs to be critiqued just as much as the male God of the Bible does. You know, yeah, I was raised Catholic. Definitely God was the bearded white guy on the mountain kind of thing. And now that I'm old enough to have a white beard, maybe that doesn't seem like a horrible idea, although I really wouldn't want the pressure. My son, however, was raised in Quaker meeting all of his life. So after Quaker meeting one day, a few of us were lamenting, mentioning, you know, that we grew up with this vision of God. And my son was, I think, in high school at that point, And he chimed in, which was kind of unusual for him. And he said, well, you know, actually, I was never raised with that image that is common to all of you. He said when he was a kid, and we mentioned the word God, what he thought about was a cartoon program that he used to watch regularly, Captain Planet. If that means anything to you. If you haven't seen it, go out to YouTube and check out Captain Planet, an environmental with males, females combining together. And he's got green hair, blue skin and such to symbolize the earth. That's what my son grew up with when he heard the word God, which I, I think is quite an improvement over the bearded, white haired guy. How about you, Judith? What was your experience growing up and how did that male femaleness of God progress for you? Well, I certainly grew up thinking of God as male. You know, the dominant images in the prayer book I grew up with were images of God as Lord and King. Over time, unlike Carol, I came to reject the notion of a personal God. So I'm actually much more comfortable with images like the one uh, your son mentioned, images uh, well, Marsha Falk is a Jewish feminist poet and liturgist who has written liturgy that does not imagine God as male or as person. So she will, rather than saying, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, she writes, let us bless the source of life or the wellspring of life. And that imagery is much more comfortable for me than any personal language. 
and at the same time, I fully agree with Carol that I see everything in the universe as a reflection of God and an image of God. So I think that God contains the fullness of our male, femaleness, both, neither, plants, animals, the rest of creation, you know, all as part of the myriad faces of God. And Judith, so if you're not starting out, how do you actually start it out in Hebrew how, with the statement you were just saying? Nevarek et en hachayim, let us bless the wellspring of life. Marcia changes the blessings around. She doesn't use a formula. She tries to connect the invocation with the thing that's being blessed, but that's one beginning that she uses in a number of different blessings. And that's what I use in my home ritual. Maybe now is a good point to get into the convergence and divergence of your point of view. I think you started the book thinking you were very close together and just a few items to be worked out between you. I don't know if both of you had that assumption, but I get the sense that while you recognized a vast amount of overlap in the way that both you, Carol, and Judith think about goddess and God and embodied theology, even though you have a lot of overlap, there are crucial differences. Maybe the commonalities would be good to address first. Could you comment on that, Carol? Yes, I think the commonalities that we recognized obviously had a lot to do with the notion of embodied theology that we talked about, the idea that as human beings, we always think from a standpoint and that standpoint is our embodied bodies as well as our communities and our larger social world and the world as a whole, the natural world, the web of life as environmentalists call it, that we're thinking from that position. That was one thing that we certainly agree on. Another is that divinity is to be found in this world, not in the next. We share that with a lot of other people in our culture Yet at the same time, other seekers, perhaps some mystics, some Buddhists, perhaps some Hindu seekers, are actually still seeking to escape from this world. I think every tradition has its more this world and its more otherworldly side. And we certainly both have come down on the this-worldly side. Neither of us believes that there's a life after death or reincarnation or any way that the individual goes on except in the memories that are held by others and in the world. So those are two really fundamental points of agreement. And of course, we were both seeking alternatives to the dominant male, sometimes violent God of our traditions. I think another important thing that we share is questioning authority, because as we point out in the book, if one of us had said, the Bible says, and that was the end of the conversation, we couldn't have worked together and we couldn't have written together. So the <laughs> fact uh, you know, that we both affirm that we as members of communities are our own authorities is hugely important. It's something that we share that's enabled us to work together. And I just, adding to that, that isn't only a problem for people who stayed within one of the recognized traditions. It's also a question for neo-pagans, goddess people, and other seekers who are seeking outside of the Jewish and Christian tradition, and perhaps outside of any other, outside of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. It's also true for those of us who are finding our spirituality outside of any of those traditions. There's a tendency even within the goddess movement to say, 
well, the goddess told me in a dream, and then, you know, that's it. Or our tradition teaches. I hear that a lot from other followers of what's broadly called a neo-pagan path. You know, Odin, my god, tells me, or things like that. So I think that all traditions need to be understood to be a matter of interpretation. And we still are, even if we go outside of the so-called authoritarian or authoritative written traditions, we still have to recognize that we are the ones who are our own authorities with our communities. Because I am what I am, uh, religiously, spiritually, I'm right on the page with you. I can hear a whole bunch of voices that say, then what can you base your direction of your life, your ideas, how you form your life? What is the dependable, let's use the word authority, what's the dependable source that indicates good, bad, right, wrong? Why do we know violence is wrong? You know, for instance, it's kind of convenient if you can quote a Jesus saying, you know, turn the other cheek. If you don't have that kind of source, what source do you dependably turn to? If you mean by dependably a source that is the truth, a source that is unchanging, there isn't one, but there are sources of truth, I think, in communities of solidarity and resistance. So where I base myself is in groups within the Jewish community and other traditions that are lifting up those aspects of tradition that I see as life-affirming and world-changing in positive ways. And there isn't anything more absolute than that. That's what we're stuck with. I mean, that's one of the burdens of being human from my point of view. You know, coming from the Quaker point of view again, the advice that we give one another about such things is, you know, sink down to the seed, live up to the light, and more will be granted you. Those are the kinds of sources that I'm talking about that are dependable. We do believe if you still yourself and you sink deep within, you will go without to the spirit that encompasses the universe you'll be in touch of that. Each of us has, as the phrase goes, that of God within everyone, that we each have access to that without intermediary. So when you say scriptures are not dependable, they're not the source, if you will, uh, you know, it's not the word of God. And if you don't have a church structure and tradition, that's the kind of dependable thing I'm asking how you, Judith, or you, Carol, turn to. I also turn to communities, but I think for me, communities of resistance, uh, women's communities and other communities on the progressive left, shall we say. But for me, it's also a matter of thinking deeply about my own experience. And my own experience is never mine alone, because I wouldn't have any experience if you weren't here to talk to me today and Judith wasn't here to talk to me and with me today. I believe that our experience is always relational, and I also, you know, through meditation and observation, I believe that we're deeply embedded in the web of life as human beings. We're dependent on the cells of our bodies to function without our rational control. We're dependent on our place in nature. We're dependent on streams and rain uh, for our water. We're totally interdependent in the web of life. And so this is one of 
my deepest sources of authority is my recognition of my interdependence and the small place that I and my desires and wishes play in the larger whole. But within that, within that giving up of a certain type of egotism, I also have a vision that there could be greater harmony in our world than there is now. So those are my sources of authority. Does that spark any additional thoughts for you, Judith? I very much agree with what Carol is saying. I think there's maybe a slight difference in emphasis between us in that I tend to stress somewhat more my coming to awareness of these things in community. So though I think there is an important individual element to intuiting this larger reality, I tend to stress coming to that insight and awareness with others in a different way. And for you, Carol, does that mean community is a principal place? Amongst other things that you do, there's the Goddess Pilgrimage to Crete. There's one coming up in this fall that still has seats. You navigate people on the Goddess Pilgrimage. Is that part of community there? Is there a place, a group of people that you unite with weekly, daily, monthly? How does that go for you in terms of community? Yes, if anyone would like to come on the Goddess Pilgrimage to Crete this fall, our website is www.goddessariadne.org. I think that probably I've always been more of a mystical child than Judith. So I think my own sort of personal experiences in nature have always been very fundamental for me. And I think I've also felt less accepted in communities than Judith has. So that while I agree completely that life is relational and we're shaped and formed by communities and we couldn't survive without them, sometimes I wonder if I'll, you know, where I will find a community that I can really root myself because I always seem to be on the outside, on the borders, on the fringes. And I've spent a lot of my time seeking to create communities and at the same time not having a traditional community like Judith does that that's always there, shall we say. I think when you try to shape your own communities, they come and go as people move around. And at the same time that I, I, I don't have an ongoing religious community as Judith does, I'm very involved in the Green Party in Greece. I've been lucky enough to have dual citizenship and to have been invited to join with other Greek people in trying to create a different political reality in Greece. Uh, it's a hard struggle. And again, the community is often at its own throat, eating each other up. So community for me is something that I recognize, but perhaps don't experience on a day-to-day basis in the same way as Judith does. And one of the thoughts I have, and I, I certainly notice the discussion in Goddess and God in the World, as you exchange back and forth, taking alternate chapters, addressing where you overlap and where you have differences, I have a sense that it would really be nice if you thought the other person could meet you right where you are. And there's such <laughs> you you are such good you are such respectful listeners to one another. But there's still like, but don't you really see I'm right? That <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I think we both do feel, we each do feel that way. And at the same time, if we agreed on everything, we wouldn't have had a book. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been boring, yeah. (laughs) No, I I don't think we would. I mean, 
you mentioned earlier that we decided to write because of our similarities. I think it was actually our differences that led us to decide to write a book because we've been arguing about theology for decades at this point, and we thought, wouldn't it be interesting and fruitful to try to bring our disagreements to a larger audience? And wouldn't it be fruitful? So you've done it now. There's a wonderful book, Goddess and God in the World. And I have a link on northernspiritradio.org where you can get Carol P. Christ and Judith Plasco's book. You've written the book. Has it been fruitful for you personally? I think it's been very fruitful. It was a fun and interesting and fruitful process. I know that I came to clarify my ideas a lot through our conversation. So we each spent three chapters laying out our theological autobiographies, and then we raise questions for each other and respond. But we were really carrying out that process the whole time we were writing. So we were constantly saying to each other, clarify this. What do you really mean? I don't get this. And it was enormously helpful. And you, Carol? I think since we did begin with our differences in this particular book, although obviously our similarities we've written about and talked about is for many decades as well, I think for me, since I'd already written She Who Changes, where I clarified my view of divinity, I didn't learn so much new about my view of divinity, but I think for me the real surprise was when we came you know, into debating our differences, and they really came out quite starkly, and sometimes it was hard to deal with each other's criticisms of our positions that we each hold very dear to our hearts, then to realize how much we we did share. I think coming back to that was probably the biggest insight I got in the writing of the book. And we've sort of skirted around our biggest differences, so maybe we should talk a little bit about those here. But also I think in the process of being able to talk to each other about it and even to somewhat harshly criticize each other, Hopefully we're opening a way for other people to really be able to talk about our deepest visions of reality and the world and divinity, even though they may be different, without being afraid to do that. What I'm going to say now won't be included in the broadcast, folks, so you'll have to come to the NordenSpiritRadio.org site and look at the bonus excerpts connected with this program to hear my personal theological musings and reactions from Carol and Janet. But now I have some other questions to remain as part of the broadcast. Do you have actual personal religious experience, Carol, that is bedrock foundational for you? Yes. When my mother died... I was in the room, and I could say that up until that time, I had often felt unloved, both in my family, in the schools, and throughout my life. That was, you know, my mother cross that I had to bear, was uh, often feeling unloved. And as my mother died, I felt the room filled with love. I couldn't say it was filled with the love of the goddess, per se, but it just felt filled with love. And I can truthfully say that from that moment until this, I've never felt unloved in the way that I felt before that moment. My interpretation, getting back to the idea of interpretation, my interpretation of that experience is that the goddess is love. So that that is an, an experience, a mystical experience, you might want to call it, or a deep experience that has shaped my whole view of the world from that time to this. 
What about you, Judith? How do you resonate or maybe want to argue against my viewpoints? And I won't take umbrage at it, believe me. But your personal experience and your viewpoint, how does it relate? And again, we're talking somewhat about the differences that you talk about between you and Carol in Goddess and God in the World. Right. So the two crucial ways in which Carol and I differ other than the fact that she chose to leave behind Christianity while I remained within Judaism, or that I do not see God as a personal presence. For me, God is the creative energy that undergirds and sustains and flows through the universe, but God is not a personal presence, and I also do not see God as good. I see God as embracing the whole, that is, embracing both good and evil. So my understanding is it's perhaps closer to some of the things that you were saying, and I, I differ from Carol in those two ways. I mean, for me, I think one of the most powerful religious experiences I've ever had was when I was at Iguazu Falls on the border of Argentina and Brazil, and I was completely mesmerized by the falls. I just felt like I could have stayed there for the rest of my life, and I felt as if I was standing at the wellspring of life that I was seeing it in its incredible power and energy and amorality, that the waters of the falls were beautiful and vivifying and had incredible energy, and I felt if I could channel that energy and bring it into the rest of my life, I would be a much more effective person in the world. And at the same time, they knew they could, they could overwhelm, they could drown, they could pull things under. So that sense of the source of life being the source of both good and ill, for me, was a baseline experience. And it's not as if I hadn't articulated that before as a theologian, but I experienced it in a visceral and whole way, in a way that I hadn't before. There is one thing that's different. You commented on this, Carol, and I think maybe you've, at least in passing, commented on Judith. You come from a Jewish family. You've got this Jewish identity, and I think your spiritual community is the Haverot that you meet with, that you have a concrete community of people that you meet with face to face. One of the things as I watch your discussion go back and forth in Goddess and God in the World, I had the question for you, Judith, is do you have the option or possibility of not being a Jew or being a non-Jew? Maybe it's parallel, you know, if I went up to a black person, an African-American here, because genetically they have darker skin and they've got different hair or something, maybe they don't have the option of not being an African. Is that the same situation with you? Ethnically, yes, but religiously, no. And I was very aware at a certain point in my life as a feminist of making a decision to remain within and seek to transform the Jewish community. And I was very aware that I could have been an ethnic Jew and a goddess feminist. I mean, Starhawk, as one of the most prominent goddess feminists, is still very much ethnically a Jew and draws on that tradition. So I 
definitely recognized that as a possibility for me. Could I become not a Jew <laughs> ethnically? I, I don't think I could. No. You know, I, I, sh I should say that part of what was very important in my own young theological questions and theological development was becoming obsessed with the Holocaust when I was about 12. So my awareness that people with one Jewish grandparent were considered Jews and they didn't have a choice has certainly played a role in shaping my Jewish identity. I think it's really important to include that as one of the factors that make the discussion that Judith Plasco and Carol P. Christ have in Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology, the role of women, the role of religious history, community, identity, the disparities between thought-based and embodied spirituality, all of those topics and many, many more are included in the book, and you should read it. But Carol, you have a last comment? One of the things I became aware of when we were writing the book was that the question of community is very different for Judith and me, but it's also quite different for me and many feminist Christian theologians, because I didn't have a continuity between my ethnic identity, which was never really discussed, and it was mixed Northern European, but it wasn't any you know, it's German, Swedish, Scottish, Irish, English. So there was never any one nationality or ethnicity that we identified with. And my parents had a mixed marriage so that my father's family were Roman Catholic. Very, My grandmother was very strongly Roman Catholic. My mother's mother and her mother had converted to Christian science. And then I was raised Protestant. So I didn't have a continuity between my identity and my family and my religious identity and my ethnic identity. And also, but they, they were all Christian, but they weren't like the way some people feel about their Catholic background or even their Methodist background, that this is who I am because this is what all my family are. I also was raised in a lower middle class environment where not very many students went on to college, not very many students were studious, so I was always, you know, marginal there. I also happened to be taller than almost everyone in the whole world, and so I never felt, <laughs> oh, there's a group of people and they all look like me, because there never was. So, yeah, it's a very different experience of belonging, uh, I think, that Judith has had compared to mine. There's a reason many people look up to you, Carol, really. It's, and it, it's not just your height. It is your writing. You write so cogently. And Judith, you convey your experience. And clearly, even if you don't identify God as the loving source, it's clear that you approach so thoughtfully and lovingly each of your interactions. I see both of you as still being very engaged with moving the world forward in a positive direction. I hate to specify it much more than that. How is that going for you, Judith, and how is that going for you, Carol? Well, I'm very engaged right now with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in New York, and in particular with their campaign for police accountability. It's been very exciting to have a place to be able to be engaged in what's going on in the city and in the country right now around anti-racism work and to do that in a Jewish context in coalition with many other groups. And you, Carol? 
For me, I guess the activism that I have in the United States, since I don't live there, comes primarily through my blogs and probably every fourth or fifth blog that I write on feminismandreligion.com deals with political issues, including race and sex and violence and war and all of the issues that, you know, that we need to be thinking about. And over here in Greece, as I said, I'm involved in the Green Party Greece. And for me, the four principles on which the Green Party were founded are almost my life philosophy, just add the goddess to it and stir, you could say. And that is sustainability, social justice, no violence, Nonviolence got translated into Greek as no violence, which is something that I feel is very important. And the fourth is participatory democracy and trying to find ways in which people can make their opinions heard and discuss them before they get to the ballot box and after so that it's not just a matter of casting your vote, but of really being able to create together the kind of world that we envision. And I've also been involved for many years in uh, the struggle to save the wetlands of Lesbos. I ended up writing a complaint that was signed by World Wildlife Fund Greece that's currently still in the European Commission. We've won our case, but there hasn't been any resolution of it yet. That is, we've won our case that the Greek government is not protecting the wetlands of Lesbos. And the commission is also quite well aware that they're not protecting any of the wetlands of Greece. There's so much more that we could talk about, both Carol and Judith, um, the content of the book. But I want to thank you both for writing it. I think that the thoughts that you advance in the book, and I do hope people go read Goddess and God in the World, follow the link from NordenSpiritRadio.org. If they go and read it, they will be enriched in how they think about themselves and how they think about the world and our connections and how we live out our lives here. And I think that's just crucial for making it a better world. So thank you both, Judith and Carol, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests today for Spirit in Action have been Judith Plasco. She joined us from Manhattan, New York, and Carol P. Christ joined us from the Greek island of Lesbos, where she lives. Remember to check out the link on NordenSpiritRadio.org to Carol and the Goddess Pilgrimage to Crete, and maybe you can join her this fall on that tour. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and thank you for joining us for this discussion. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, 